When Dorothy's son Michael shows up unexpectedly, he's got big news. Not only is he around to visit, but he's getting married. And on top of all of that, his fiance is black. At first, Dorothy feels love is love. But when she learns her daughter-in-law-to-be is twice Michael's age, well, now she has a problem. Almost as big of a problem as Blanche and Rose's race to lose weight before a romantic weekend with their bows. Will Dorothy ever accept Lorraine into her life? Will Blanche and Rose conquer beauty? Will someone explain to me why this is such a beloved episode? All of that and more in today's episode, Mixed Blessings. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. a lovely sunny day it is when we head inside to find Dorothy in tan pants and a bright yellow shirt reading a paper and making her way to the couch when Blanche in her weekend wear reddish purplish sweatshirt busts the door open leans on it and proceeds to pant of course Dorothy asks what's going on so Blanche simply points out she's panting and no it isn't because the delivery driver is wearing his sexy overalls again when Rose follows her inside, they share why they are suddenly the Jane Fondas of Richmond Lane. Simple. They've been invited to spend a romantic weekend in the Bahamas with the Harlan twins. I guess Rose and Al are old news. Perhaps the failed sailing trip is why she's rebounding with a cruise. In order for them to feel worthy enough of these unknown twins, the girls are forcing themselves to meet 1988 beauty standards for women by giving themselves makeovers of the mind, body, and spirit but mostly focusing on the body. Their plan includes working out, which is led by Rose, and beauty will be done by Blanche. Now hold on to your oh boys, because this episode is full of them. Like right now, how Dorothy, upon hearing the exciting news about the cruise, isn't supportive of their new health kick, but jokes that they'll need someone around to distract the men from their hideous bodies once they're in their swimsuits. But before they can talk to her about how rude she is, a car horn gives a little honk-honk from out front, summoning a blue and green dress with burgundy cardigan wearing Sophia, who scampers past the girls, hollering her goodbyes as she's off to Disney World's Epcot Center. For once, Dorothy isn't surprised by this trip of Sophia's, but she is confused as to why Sophia is leaving but doesn't have a bag. Well, what does she need a bag for? She and her senior center friends are going to go get on the bus, drive the three and a half hours northwest where they can pass the time with card games, check into a hotel where they sleep the day away, and come back in the morning. She can't wait. Rose is, and you're not going to believe this, confused as to why Sophia would go through all of that trouble, spending the time and money to go to Epcot but not actually go to Epcot. While as fancy and exciting as the then-only-six-year-old theme park was that was known for showcasing technology and cultures from around the world, Sophia knows that at 82 years old, she probably won't be around when those technologies are actually available, so why bother? 
Fun fact, EPCOT was originally an acronym that stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, and it was Walt's dream to have it not as a theme park, but as an actual functioning lived-in community. After Walt's death, everyone looked around to one another and was like, we're not actually going to run like a city, right? Especially without Walt around. Can we just stick to what we do best? So no cities, just a park. With a bye or see you later in Spanish, Sofia is out of the picture, leaving the girls to get back to obsessing about their perfectly wonderful bodies. Blanche is happy to go first in the before-diet measurement process, and like a 1950s Hollywood goddess, she delicately raises her arms, anticipating being told that she has retained her hourglass figure. Dorothy agrees that she has one, but perhaps it's a little thicker than it had been, as though someone added sand to the timer. Blanche is unfazed by Dorothy's bullying. She knows it's just jealousy talking. Having been busy with measuring, Rose finally stands and adds to Dorothy's point by saying how much she likes it when you get to the furthest end of the measuring tape and it changes color to let you know that you're out of room. While Rose's comments aren't being said with malice, when she mentions the last time she saw the changing of the spool color was when she was measuring for the couch cover, it's not any less painful. So Blanche rips the measuring tape from her hands. Saved by the bell as always, an unexpected visitor is at the door. Dorothy assumes it's Sophia having left something behind, but you know, why would she ring the doorbell? Instead, she is delightfully surprised to find her son Michael on the other side of the door. We've met Scott Jacoby in the episode where he met Rose's daughter, so now we can talk about the movie Coco and I finally watched just the other day, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Go in that study, Mrs. Hallett, and I tell my father about your son. I even had to ask him why the police don't do anything about it. Why should they do anything? When your son gives candy to pretty little girls. Academy Award nominee Jodie Foster, Martin Sheen, Alexis Smith. The little girl who lives down the lane. That was a weird one. I had high hopes starting out. And there was, there's a lot of good things that happen in it that are, you know, that work. So for some th- things. <laughs> some things. So for anyone that hasn't even heard of this, which I hadn't until like the last year. Coco, you already knew of this, right? It had been on your list. I did. I knew that Jodie Foster was the star of it and it was an early role and I... I heard of it my whole life, but no one really talked about it or held it up as some sort of suspense yeah. classic. And we found out why. If We did, because as it starts, it's Jodie Foster and she's young and she's at home. And then Martin Sheen shows up, which we'll talk about him more later. Yeah. He shows up and he's a total creep. And she's like, no, my dad's not around. And you're like, what is going on? This is like weird and groovy. And then like everyone stops acting like she's 14 and... She goes to bed with Scott Jacoby, who's, you know, in his early 20s. But I felt like he was maybe supposed to be a high school student then. Like in the, oh, I in thought the, it had been mentioned. I thought in, they had said something oh, about like it, that you were 21 or something. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very icky. Very sexual. Very sexual and icky and 70s. Yeah. When, um, well, I guess maybe that was the, the thing. It was that, that the parents were 
there were like maybe all of these, um, I mean, is latchkey kid, is that an offensive term? No, I think it's a actual term. <laughs> so it's like the, a response to that, you know? It's like mm. in the 80s, the, the, the gangs and the, the kids are taking over the schools. And in the 70s, our kids are like just doing whatever they want. Which yeah, is weird. It's because adult. it was done like to them. Yeah. The the adults did that to the kids and then were worried about what the kids were gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> do I sound crazy right now? No, that makes sense. Well, they sound crazy. They're the adults that should be caring for the kids, and it's like, oh, these kids are getting into trouble. It's like, well We're letting them live by themselves and have <laughs> sex with everybody. <laughs> yeah, it was hypersexualized, but it was a really fun concept that basically she was kind of a serial killer, but yeah, not there. I think like her mom was sick, and then her yeah. dad died. So it's very suggestive of what happens. You yeah, really, there's not really any violence that I. And can she think played of. it amazingly. She's great. I think her character and the way she was like so cool and confident, like that was really rad. But yeah, it just sucked that it was. That and it was I think so because sexual. she seemed so mature as a young person, mm-hmm. they pushed her into those roles more and more. I don't know if this was after Taxi Driver, but if it was, I could understand that. I feel like it was I, just I in how she looked. Yeah. I feel like she looked older than Taxi Driver, but not by yeah. much. No, no, no. Yeah. But Taxi Driver, it's to make a point. Yeah, that felt like part of the story. Yeah. This was just like, might as well. We're just here, unattended. That, yeah, it felt like everyone just was, they were like, we can just do whatever, whatever we, we want. Get the wine. <laughs> oh my God. And, and there was a body double for the brief nudity that there is. But even that, yeah. you know how I feel about that, where it's like, mm-hmm. you're implying. So the people it's that still... are watching this and like into it, or people might seek out this movie because you're implying that she's that age and that she's nude or whatever. And I don't like it. It's gross. So Jodie Foster did a great job. Scott Jacoby, I thought, did a great Me job. Me too. It was the material that was really the only was problem. Was he a magician? He was. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. He was, he was a, a he was dorky a, little magician. A dork and kind of a lonely guy and a magician. All of it made sense to me mm-hmm. except the sexual stuff. Mm-hmm. Like as a as a relationship between them, it made sense. But Yeah. And Martin Sheen seemed like he was on cocaine or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he didn't know what to do after Apocalypse that... Now. Or before. I don't know what year it was. Or is. Apparently, Michael has left his gig with the Philharmonic and has joined a touring band, which had a gig in Fort Lauderdale, and being that Miami was only half an hour away and he didn't have any concerts for the weekend, he decided to come by for a visit, which is what people had to do sometimes. So, like, if I lost your number but I knew where you lived, I would just swing by. I mean, I wouldn't, like, personally. My God, no. But that's what people had to do pre-internet or smartphone days. Could you imagine, Coco? No one could warn us. People would just show up to be like, I'm in town for a visit. I think we would have to just like set something on fire. Be like, sorry, our couch is on fire. An unannounced visit is maybe my least favorite thing to happen in a home besides maybe (laughs) my own murder. (laughs) Well, as long as you're not being hyperbolic It really throws me off. And like a visit visit. Like a like an auntie from California. Oh yeah, but really, it's anybody. I mean, it's anyone who knocks on the door to deliver yeah. a package. But yeah. if like <laughs> if a if a if a if my best friend, my father, came over, I'd be like, "Damn it, <laughs> I love you. Why the f- are you here? You think my house is in any sort of order to just have people over? That's most of it. I'm not my mother. Yeah, I need to put pants on, and I won't. And I don't want to. It's so 
hot that I forgot what year it is. <laughs> so hot. All right. It's really not that hot. I love you. I love you. Sitting on the couch to catch up, Dorothy asks about his life. That's when he shares the big news. He's engaged. It leaves Dorothy dumbfounded. Ever the cheerleader, Rose is excited for him, which eventually brings Dorothy back to Earth. It's not that she doesn't want Michael to get married. It's just that Dorothy didn't even know he was seeing anyone. He barely is. They've only been dating for four months. That's 16 weeks, 120 days. It's like they're on Bachelor or something. When I was flying in the helicopter over this amazing city, I looked to my left and never saw something so pretty. <laughs> At the end of tonight, I'm not just your average Joe, but I hope in my hindsight, I'll see and find a rose. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty intense stuff. Once everyone is on board with the marriage, Blanche wants to know when they'll be meeting his fiancée, Lorraine. Well, it just so happens that she has family in the area and she's staying with them. So on Sunday, he wanted to have what my family calls family dinner. I know, very creative. The room is a buzz, giddy about the family's meeting. But before they can pop the champagne, Michael has one more tidbit about his relationship he wants his mom to know before they meet. Her future daughter-in-law is, as he says, sort of black. As all the smiles on everyone's faces are awkwardly frozen, Dorothy finally asks, how can someone be only sort of black? That's like saying you're only sort of Spanish. So after his mother pushes, Michael tells the supposedly progressive, non-judgmental, loving Dorothy that she is indeed a black woman. And Dorothy's oh boy reaction of, oh God, with closed eyes and a body roll, are just, in my opinion, some of her lower moments. I too was upset by her reaction. I, I kind of couldn't believe it, but also, I think that happens in life. Mm-hmm. People that you, older people that you respect, sometimes will kind of say something, and it's like, ooh, yeah, and it sucks. Yeah, the time she grew up in, it makes it does make sense and sucks. Yeah, that a person that 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 you can look up to can also disappoint you in that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Going back to the partial Spanish conversation, Rose disagrees with Dorothy's black or white statement. Emilio Estevez is sort of Spanish. And she's right. Emilio Estevez is the son of Ramon Antonio Geraldo Estevez, better known as Martin Sheen. To no one's surprise, his whitewashed stage name was created so he would be offered more roles. Martin's grandmother, so Emilio's great-grandmother, was an immigrant from Spain. So Emilio and his brother Carlos Estevez, better known as Charlie Sheen, are indeed partially Spanish. After Dorothy takes a moment to gather her thoughts, she expresses herself quite well when Michael checks in, making sure she's okay. She is okay, but she's overwhelmed. A moment ago, she was bashing her friend's body and kissing her mother goodbye. Now she's sitting here with her son, learning he's getting married to a black woman. Giving support to her son, it's clear Dorothy isn't racist, but she's not anti-racist. I feel like her reaction came from some deep-seated growing up in the 40s with Sophia stuff, so she should take some time with that, because that reaction, 
Yeesh. Michael assures his mother he is in love and he's happy, so he hopes she can feel the same for him. She can, and she starts to walk him to her room. Damn it, Vincenzo, they really needed that guest room. Coming to the realization Lorraine's family will also be black, Rose kind of panics. Yikes. So Dorothy recommends that she does her reenactment of the dance the cast did in the opening credits of The Cosby Show. Oh, boy. Still on their makeover kick, Blanche and Rose are in the kitchen. Blanche, in a lighter, pinker polo version of yesterday's sweater, is holding a towel on multiple yellow polo shirt wearing Rose's face. As Rose starts to overheat, Blanche assures her with her best vaudevillian saleswoman speech that she's fine and keeping it on a little while longer will only make the outcome even better. Coming into the kitchen behind Rose is a white shirt with a lavender open sweater wearing Dorothy. Dropping the towel at the count of three, Dorothy gets payback for those nasty comments when Rose accidentally sees her face in the mirror instead of her own and reacts with disgust. Rose apologizes profusely. Dorothy sort of accepts, joking that she had forgotten how hideous she would look with it being a full moon and all. It's Saturday afternoon and Lorraine is coming over to meet everyone, leaving Dorothy a nervous wreck. Rose asks if that is what has Dorothy stressed, leaving yet another perfect opening for her sarcasm. No, it's not meeting my future in-laws. It's that the former husband of Cher and co-host of the Sonny and Cher show, Sonny Bono, is running for mayor of Palm Springs, an election he did actually win, and she's concerned that he's going to force the government workers to dress like he did back in the day. If you need a reference point, check out Sophia's outfit when she and Dorothy are singing I Got You, Babe, in a later episode. Sonny Bono was mayor of Palm Springs, California for four years. He was, shockingly, a Republican who wanted to help businesses and families. There was an attempted recall, but it didn't take. And when his first term ended, he was then a state rep before dying in a ski accident in 1995. For being Mr. Counterculture in the 60s, he kind of sucked as a politician. Refusing to help control rent and refusing to walk in an AIDS walk were just some of his highlights. Blanche tries to help quell Dorothy's concern by reminding her that Lorraine must be even more nervous. Before Dorothy can get into the story of the first time she met Stan's mother, Rose interrupts with a line we've seen a million times if you watch the show on the Hallmark Channel by asking, Can I ask a dumb question? Met with Dorothy's flawless response of, Better than anyone I know. Rose proceeds to ask if black people suffer from dandruff. I don't know if that's a dumb question or a rude question or an inappropriate one. And honestly, I don't know how you could have handled that in the 80s. It's not like you would ask the next black person you met and you couldn't Google it. But I do have the answer for Rose now. A 2019 survey on Healthline.com found that seborrheic dermatitis, or dandruff, is actually one of the top diagnosed skin conditions in black people, and of course, especially black women. And contrary to Dorothy's answer of, they've been through enough so God gave black people a pass on dandruff, there remain medical discrepancies towards people of color, so the diagnosis and treatment can be difficult because it is so often misdiagnosed. Which reminds me of a survey I saw within the past year, and I can't remember the number exactly, but it was something like 30% of graduating medical students thought black skin was thicker than white. So that's why representation matters. It's time. 
The bell has rung and Dorothy must face her nerves. Finding an older woman when she opens the door, Dorothy assumes it is her son's future mother-in-law, as the woman has gray hair at her roots and a neutral-colored shirt, skirt, and cover that screams, I like poetry. When Michael shows up behind her, she realizes this older woman is her future daughter-in-law. Speaking of Lorraine, let's get to know her. She's being played by Rosalind Cash. Fun, random, but kind of sad fact, Rosalind was born on New Year's Eve 1938, and she passed away on Halloween 1995. So, I don't know, I thought that was interesting that her sunrise and sunset were both on holidays. Even more fun facts, Rosalind got her acting start on the stage and was an original member of the Negro Ensemble Company in New York. Among the Emmy-nominated actresses' credits were Tales from the Hood, General Hospital, which earned her a posthumous Emmy nod, A Different World, Knott's Landing, Fresh Prince, Lois and Clark, Falcon Crest, 30-something, Don't Tell Sophia, Family Ties, Highway to Heaven, Cagney and Lacey, The Cosby Show, Knight Rider, Hill Street Blues, Go Tell It on the Mountain, earning one of her Emmy nominations, Trapper John M.D., The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension, Benson, The Sophisticated Gents, Starsky and Hutch, What's Happening, Kojak, Good Times, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Uptown Saturday Night, La La, of course, and The Omega Man. You got any more questions, fat head? My name's Robert. Your name's Mud. Yeah, she's the the yeah the the co lead in the Omega Man opposite Charlton Heston. That's right. And she's really great in that really badass, super cool seventies look. And I think they I think they could fall in love. And oh, a, fun. There's a sensual kiss. <laughs> a groovy one. A 70s groovy kiss. He's probably got a velvet or velour jumpsuit on and holding a little machine gun. Because that's one of your favorites. I don't know about that movie, but that story. Because that's the I Am that's Legend, I am, right? Yeah, I Am Legend, the original novel by Richard Matheson is one of my favorites. And, oh, that's really cool that she was in that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of her being in Tales from the Hood, I highly recommend that movie. Uh, if anyone likes anthology movies, horror movies, Clarence Williams the Third, <laughs> they're great. They're really great. Uh, you know, Twilight Zone style. Uh, what are they called? Morality tales. You know. Oh right, right. Where there's a lesson at the end, and there's sort of like they, I think they all they all have like an ironic twist, and there's like mm-hmm. a wraparound story. A lot of story. karma. Yeah, so very much like a like a Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, and so it covers child abuse, police brutality, racism. Oh, just the cycle of violence. Yeah. The system that that creates When's that the last and time perpetuates you it, it a few months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. it was just it was on um it was on cable. I was just curious if it hadn't been a while, like how how it would feel or look through the lens of now. Like I feel like you and I have really been working on uh how we see things and process things and understand things, so it still very much yeah. applies that movie. Yeah. <laughs> It still it still resonates. As an adult that's more aware of racism in the world and the systemic issues, did did, did the film feel different or like did you catch things that maybe you hadn't in the other viewings? Yeah, I think when I was younger I felt there was a lot more choice that people had more oh. choice rather than circumstances pow- people in power making choices for them and mm-hmm. and um providing them with the circumstances that they then have to grapple with day to day just to survive. Right. So I didn't see that before. 
Uh, but I, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I was 14, I think when I saw that. So for the first time. Right. So, well, I've never seen it, so I'm definitely adding it to our Halloween list. It's a high year. quality movie too. It's a really good, I love anthology movies yeah. and this one is great. Yeah. And it's like legitimately, well, it's scary. Freaky. <laughs> Freak me out. <laughs> Since Lorraine never got a chance to correct Dorothy, it's the big smooch Michael gives her that clears everything up for everyone. Well, not Rose, of course. She thinks he really likes his mother-in-law. Uh, what? Coming inside, Lorraine isn't upset by the mix-up. She gets it. She's 44 and Michael is 29, right? This is great news for Rose. She was worried they'd be struggling to make conversation with another 20-something in the house. But 44? Why, that's basically Rose's age. Blanche corrects her. No, she's not that old. She's closer to my young and virile 40-something age. After the girls argue about who's younger, Dorothy tries to give actual introductions. It's then we learn that Lorraine is a singer, and that's how she and sax-playing Michael met. Still excited to be hanging out with an older gal, Rose hopes Lorraine can sing them their favorite oldies. I appreciate that Blanche, of all people, is the one to take Lorraine's suitcase and show her to the room. I like to think that that was the writer's way of showing that just because she's from the South, calls her dad daddy, and talks about magnolia trees, it doesn't mean she's racist. After making herself comfy in the chair, Rose is asked to excuse Dorothy and Michael. She does so without hesitation, but she's curious where they're going. Ellen then starts barking. Go on. Uh, Pay your uh, check and get the hell out. Do you want me to call the cops? Whoops, that's the wrong Ellen, and it was actually Dorothy who's the one raging towards Rose. Dorothy loses all manners and demands for Rose to get out. After hearing his mother's outburst, Michael checks in with Dorothy. It's one thing to spring the wedding on her, but to a woman double his age? Well, Michael is clearly Stan's child. Whenever Dorothy expresses even just a little bit of emotion, especially if it's due to something Stan or Michael have done, they explode in defense immediately, which is exactly what Michael has done. With Dorothy simply saying, whoa, this chick is way older than you, has Michael tantruming as only an adult white man can do, acting like his mother is flat out not supporting him, acting as though she would just be understanding even though he has overwhelmed her with information and shock in the last two days. Michael reminds Dorothy that just the night before, she was pulling a Vincenzo, quoting the Beatles by telling Michael all his marriage needs is love. But now this is becoming real. Now Dorothy's baby boy is getting married and the woman is so much older. She's worried for him and just doesn't want him to make any mistakes. That doesn't mean she thinks their marriage is a mistake. She just wants to protect him. Without anything resembling a decent conversation, Michael decides that his mother's love, which is forcing him to reconsider things and think about his actions, is just too much. So he tells her that he regrets even coming to see her. <laughs> Later that night, Dorothy heads into the kitchen and is surprised to find light pastel floral silk robe wearing Rose and Blanche in her favorite bright multicolored robe already at the table. Chiming in with their opinions as to what Dorothy should do about the whole situation, Blanche shares that, well, perhaps things aren't going too smoothly with her and her daughter Becky because she reminds and warns Dorothy that she and Becky nearly lost their relationship because she had interfered. But hadn't all of that been for the best and it saved her from a horribly abusive relationship? So, like, what's going on there? Hello? 
For Rose, it reminds her of the Vigorbotter family back home. Gretchen and Buddy were so hot for each other, but Mr. Vigorbotter was not into it. But you can't stop passion. So one day, when he caught them doing the horizontal polka right in the front yard, he freaked out and hosed them down. Remembering their lesson from the diary mix-up, Dorothy asks Rose to clarify. Are we talking about people or animals? Well, obviously we're talking about dogs. Okay, stop what you are doing, unless you're driving. But Shalmatians are now a designer breed, and if you need your heart to explode from cuteness, please Google Schnauzer Dalmatian Mix. My God. Mr. Vergerberter had no reason to be upset about those puppies. And go ahead and Gmail us if you have any, you know, lines on any Schnaumations. If you've got an extra Schnaumation lying around, we'll take it. Sight unseen. <laughs> Money is an object. Annoyed by the story, Blanche uses the same hose analogy to wish Rose had never been born. As the stares of confusion from Rose continue, the silence is broken by the entrance of a stunningly satin rose-gold nightgown and robe wearing Lorraine. Wanting to give the future family members a moment, Blanche suggests she and Rose do a bathing suit check, Rose embarrassingly sharing that they might have better luck getting into them if they spray their bums with anti-stick spray. Awkwardly, Lorraine starts chatting about the cold weather, Dorothy plays along with a humid volley, and soon they're both talking nonsense about temps and humidity. That is, until Dorothy breaks it up by asking her straight up, why are you guys getting married? Relieved to get to the elephant in the room, Lorraine takes a seat and they start an honest conversation. Well, sort of honest. Lorraine tries to validate Dorothy's concerns, but they're pretty major. What do they have in common? She's older. She's black. She's older. And then we get to a plot whoopsie. Michael is 23, you say? Interesting, especially since you said about a year and a half ago that he was 29. 23? You got married because you got pregnant, Dorothy, and you were married for 40 years. What gives? The casting did go for a realistic age gap, though. Rosalind was about 50 years old at the time, and Scott was only 33. Dorothy did bring up race again, as though that was too much of a difference for people to have a successful, happy relationship, but what she's really stuck on is the age. But this gives the ladies a great bonding moment. Lorraine lays out her life story. She's already done the right thing in a relationship. She married young and stayed married for 20 years, but they were never in love. So she's learned to not do what seems right, but to do what feels right to her. Dorothy can relate. She was in the same situation with Stan. Thought she was doing the right thing because she was pregnant. Stayed unhappily married for 38 years. Always had a love, but it was pretty toxic at best. Even though Dorothy totally understands Lorraine's life, she still can't approve of their marriage. She's using her mother's intuition, not logic, and she just can't get past the age difference. Shocked, Lorraine is sorry to hear that and leaves for bed. The next morning, it's time for the big family dinner. As a white turtleneck with a pink lace overlay at the stomach and a denim cover with one of those shoulder layers like a western trench coat wearing Dorothy is putting the final touches on the housekeeping, Michael is pleading with her to change her mind, saying that if Lorraine's mother doesn't care about their age difference, why should she? Simple. They have different opinions. When Michael argues back that Dorothy is being small-minded, she quotes the great philosopher Rose Nyland, who said, There are no small minds. 
only big heads. With their argument barely wrapped up, the doorbell rings. Michael sees himself out as Dorothy, feather duster in hand, answers the door, making her way inside like a freight train as Greta Wagner, Lorraine's mother. Followed behind her are her sisters Libby and Trudy. When Dorothy apologizes for the house being a mess, which it isn't, Greta, in an all-red skirt suit, assumes that she's the maid of the house and compliments her with a, well, I'd hire you. Hearing their arrival, Lorraine, in a beautiful bright blue blouse and tan skirt, excitedly greets her mother and aunties. So, how about we greet these ladies, too? Eliza Virginia Capers is playing Mama Greta. She got her start on Broadway in the 1950s and eventually made her way to television, appearing on Dragnet, My Three Sons, The Waltons, Evening Shade, Married with Children, ER, Mork and Mindy, Highway to Heaven, Mannix, Murder, She Wrote, St. Elsewhere, The Practice, and Fresh Prince. They told him to leave, but little Zeke just stood his ground. Uncle Phil did that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at him. I beat you again. And films like The Great White Hope, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, What's Love Got to Do With It, Lady Sings the Blues, The Toy, and most importantly, Howard the Duck. She was also a founder of the Lafayette Players, a theater company in L.A. for black artists, and she eventually won an NAACP award for theater excellence. You've been sent to me because I'm famous for finding jobs for little slackers like you. That's right. They send me all the psycho cases, all the misfits, all the phonies and the fakers who mm. think that by traipsing in here looking outlandish, they are not going to be able to find work. I got a feeling you're going to take to this job like a duck to water. <laughs> Playing Trudy is Lynn Hamilton. She also got her start on the stage, eventually appearing on Broadway. On the big and little screens, she was in Sanford and Son, Cold Case, Judging Amy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Practice, NYPD Blue, Moesha, Dangerous Minds, Murphy Brown, Sister Sister, 227, Days of Our Lives, Webster, Quincy M.E., Knight Rider, The Waltons, Hawaii Five-0, Ironside, The Bill Cosby Show, Gunsmoke, and one of my all-time favorite thrillers, the underappreciated Kiefer Sutherland, Sandra Bullock, Nancy Travis, and Jeff Bridges starring The Vanishing. Something odd. What? In the middle of everything, that little green leprechaun popped off my Lucky Charms box and started dancing around. Magically delicious. Magically delicious. Oh, and if you want to know the license plate number of that car, you let me know. Finally, Libby, played by Montrose Haggins. Her 65 credits through the years had her working on My Wife and Kids, The Hughley's, ER, La Heat, sorry, that's L.A. Heat, The Jamie Foxx Show, Home Improvement, Moesha, Seinfeld, The Relic, Sister, Sister, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Touched by an Angel, The Sinbad Show, Living Single, Life Goes On, Amen, Quantum Leap, Matlock, Say Anything, Hill Street Blues, Cagney and Lacey, Coming to America, Days of Our Lives, 30-something, Don't Tell Sophia, and Critters 1 and 2, where she played, oddly enough, different characters in each movie. In the first, she's an organist, and in the sequel, she's a farm woman. Wow. She was in a lot of movies I like. What was one of those other ones you said before Critters? The Relic? Yes. I know, sorry. <laughs> I have I talked did. about The Relic a bunch I, on this show already? I don't think you have. Highly recommend one of the biggest, goofiest <laughs> 90s Very. Like, monster movies. It's like Michael Crichton, but, you know... <laughs> kind of ch chintzy and cheesy but it's a lot of fun it stars Tom Sizemore which is so weird 
Um, and apparently that lady's in it too. And uh, there's a monster. Spoilers. It does a lot of things to people's heads. <laughs> Eats them. Uh, say anything, which I don't even know how you feel about that movie. I don't see you liking that movie. I used to love it when I was a young man. Yeah. And now I think it's kind of, he's not a good dude. And he, I think is, uh, that's not, that's not going to be a good relationship between old Lloyd and Diane and <laughs> the end of say anything. He's, um, well, he's a big old, he's a big stupid baby. Yeah. I think that's what I haven't really revisited it, but I did always enjoy it. I'm not big for romantic movies in general. It seemed romantic in a way that I liked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And, and I love that song. That's one of my all time favorite yep, songs, that too. Peter Gabriel song. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's hard to revisit because it's such a teenager. <laughs> like they're so immature and you're just like, oh, you little idiots. Stop it. But it's sweet. The light, the heat. And now the moment that had Hulu pulling the episode from their service in 2020. At the height of the George Floyd protests and the cultural shift of, yeah, we're done with all that racist horse pucky. Everything and anything that even hinted at being racist was canceled and pulled, which I think was great. But then there were some overcorrections and misunderstandings of context, which is what happened here. Coming in from the kitchen, Rose and Blanche have their mud masks on as part of their beauty regimen. And they aren't the cute little panda face or flowery ones we can just buy now. It is just full on mud, giving the appearance of blackface. Blanche is wearing a light mauve blouse and jeans, and Rose is in a dark and light gray dress, and they have matching cute little headbands to keep their hair off their face and little kitchen towels around their neck for easy cleaning. Still unaware that Dorothy is Michael's mother, Greta assumes Blanche and Rose are mom and dad. Laughing off her mother's sight impairments, Lorraine tells her to put her glasses on. When Greta does that, she is shocked at what she sees. Not just the girls in blackface, or mudface, but Dorothy, a white woman. Getting around the room with introductions, Lorraine finally shows off her fiancé. Nearly stammering, Greta is shocked to meet Michael. Lorraine is confused. She already talked to her mother, and she was okay with the couple's age difference. Well, yeah, you did, Greta agrees, and she even gave her blessing. But there was never a conversation about Michael being a little white dude. Now that the room is filled with tension, Dorothy is filled with annoyance. She isn't fond of Greta's name-calling, referring to Michael as a skinny white boy. After Rose helps to identify Michael as said skinny white boy, Dorothy points out that she too takes issue with the marriage. And no, it's not because of race, it's because of the age difference. Blanche won't let anyone imply that Dorothy or anyone under that roof would have any negative feelings towards anyone of a different race, creed, or gender. They stand for equality for all. Okay, maybe only Blanche does. How can we be equal, Rose says, when she points out the discrepancy of how white people dance, I'm using air quotes here, down the line on the music show Soul Train. Back to the issue at hand, the age difference. What does a woman that age even want to do with a boy in his early 20s? Well, Blanche has the answer for this also. It all comes down to sex. Lorraine is at her sexual peak, being in her early 40s, which she is in the window to be so, and Michael is at his, hovering somewhere in his 20s. So together, they're just real horny for each other. Cool. You should definitely get married. Now back to Greta's issue, race. She would love for her daughter to get married again, but not to a white guy. In fact, she can name off the top of her head at least 10 young, single, wealthy, good-looking black men for her to date. 
Hoping to get in on that action, Blanche grabs a pen to jot those names down for personal use. Lorraine won't have this from her mother. She doesn't care what race Michael is. They're in love. Greta blames iconic singer Diana Ross of the Supremes for her daughter's desire to marry a white guy, as she had done it once in 1971 and again in 1985. Just in time, Sophia arrives home from Epcot to find her home filled with visitors. She compares the scene to one of the 1959 play about black families in Chicago, A Raisin in the Sun. Fun fact, it's possible Lorraine is named so in honor of A Raisin in the Sun's playwright, Lorraine Hansberry. Taking control of the situation, Michael introduces Lorraine and her family to Sophia. Getting a closer look, she's confused as to why he would want to be with someone so much older. Even equating her age through the metaphor of having been around the block to how many times the ice cream truck has driven around it. Well, that does it for Greta. She's ready to fight this old broad. That's when Rose steps in. Standing between Sophia and Greta, wearing mud on her face, she stops them. Okay, so Michael's a skinny white boy, and Lorraine is long in the tooth, which relates to how a horse's age is measured by the length and shape of their teeth. But this is about love and happiness. Why aren't we being joyous? Why aren't we celebrating? Why aren't we all holding hands and singing a round of the 1968 song dedicated to the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert F. Kennedy, and John F. Kennedy, Abraham, Martin, and John? Anybody here See my old friend Abraham Can you tell me where he's gone Rose's nonsense provides a bonding moment for the mothers, both agreeing that she is absurd. The arguing continues before Greta and her sisters storm out of the house. Dorothy continues with the negativity and you're making a mistake vibe. Blanche suggests she comes to terms with it. You can't keep adults from doing whatever they want, unless it's to ride the kitty horse in front of the grocery store, Rose counters. It's later that night, and a blue nightgown-wearing Dorothy is wide awake on the couch, unable to sleep and watching TV. A fully-dressed Rose is surprised to find her up, so I'm convinced Dorothy goes to bed at like 7 p.m., but I digress. To help her feel better, she's relaxing by viewing the 1961 courtroom drama Judgment at Nuremberg which is not relaxing as it's the fictionalized version of the Nazi trials of 1947. It sounds quite topical for hearings going on currently. But this trial has shown that under a national crisis, ordinary, even able and extraordinary men can delude themselves into the commission of crimes so vast and heinous that they beggar the imagination. No one who has sat through the trial can ever forget them. Turning off the television, Dorothy asks Rose if her decision to put her foot down with Michael was the right thing to do. Confusing her question for if it was right to turn off the TV, Rose assures her it's fine, she just won't know how the movie ends. Before getting to the actual question, Blanche, who is also still up and dressed, has joined the conversation. So how would she feel if she was in the same situation with her kid? Well, she doesn't get upset about anything her son does because he's already scared her to death by nearly going full gone with the wind and burning down their town when he was just five years old. For all she cares, he could marry the then 95-year-old actress, director, and screenwriter Lillian Gish, one of the Hollywood greats, who had appeared on The Love Boat, Spiral Staircase, many silent films, and funny enough, in Arsenic and Old Lace. 
Yet again, the doorbell rings, and once again, it's Lorraine's family. They couldn't sleep either, as they too are stressed about the relationship that they aren't a part of. Being the bigger person, Greta decided that they should just come over and talk it out. They agree that they disagree with the marriage, so they agree to agree with each other. So as a team, they can each break their children's hearts. Knowing their favorite way to problem solve is via cheesecake, Dorothy offers some to Greta. Asked if she likes the dessert, she responds, Can Ella shatter glass? In regards to jazz great Ella Fitzgerald and her known ability to sing notes that broke glass, which was then used in an ad campaign for Memorex cassettes. Can the amplified voice of Ella Fitzgerald shatter this glass? Believe it. Getting comfortable in the kitchen, the ladies have had cake and coffee and are ready for more. They're starting to realize their differences aren't all that different. As Blanche gets more coffee, Sophia comes in, drawn by the noise of everyone's laughter. And oh boy, instead of calling them by their names, if she even knows them, she refers to them as the hit all-black female singing group known for songs like Heat Wave, Dancing in the Street, and Jimmy Mac, Martha and the Vandellas. Embarrassed, Dorothy begs of her mother to stop with a simple, Ma! But Greta doesn't want her to worry. She has a pain-in-the-butt mother at home, too. Have one at home, Sophia asks, offended. Like, what, we're just dogs? Done with the awkward reintroduction, Sophia's happy to see the ladies are back because, oh boy, she's got a question that is way more inappropriate than Rose's dandruff one. She wants to know if the rumors of black men having a big penis is true. Forgetting she wasn't the one being asked, Blanche chimes in, Oh, yes. Quickly realizing her mistake, she plays it off. Oh, yes, definitely. Please tell us about that, because I don't know anything about it. Shutting the conversation down, Dorothy tells Blanche that's just a stereotype. Trudy doesn't care if it's a stereotype. She's just glad it's true. Causing Blanche to pull one of her dance moves by kicking her little kitten heel out and giving Trudy's arm a, You naughty girl, slap of the towel. And according to sexandpsychology.com, there have been studies about race and penis size, which I do feel like we've mentioned before. But yeah, Trudy can call it scientific instead of a stereotype, as penis owners with African heritage did report the longest pepperoni sticks. As the room breaks out in laughter, Rose interrupts to celebrate the fact that everyone is so happy now, so the kids didn't have to sneak out to go elope. Because just like Vegas, Miami does have 24-hour chapels. In a panic, everyone runs out the door to get to the venue. Sophia leads the way inside where she encounters an uncredited janitor who she stops to ask if he's seen an adorable young white man and a wrinkled black woman in the chapel. Greta corrects her. It's a scuzzy white boy and a beautiful regal black queen. Before the man can answer, a suit-wearing Michael and white blouse with a light pink rose hint of coral blazer wearing Lorraine stumble upon them. He's confused why they're all there, and then bummed to learn it's because they're there to stop them. Greta reminds her daughter she could find such a better man, Sophia reminding Greta that her daughter isn't exactly a spring chicken. Lorraine appreciates everyone's concern, and in a very mature manner, she expresses her love for her family and therefore respect. But she is going to do what she wants to do, which is marry Michael. And if they hate them too much for that, their relationships can end. 
but that would also mean that they wouldn't get to spend time with the grandchild she's carrying, which, at 44, wow, you go, girl. I don't judge, and I sure as hell don't envy. Live your life. The mothers step aside. They agree. Neither of them want the marriage to happen. Neither are happy for their children, but both want to be part of their grandchild's life. So they'll do what they've always done as mothers, suck it up and carry the weight of their unspoken emotions. The family has arrived just in time. The justice of the peace is ready to marry them. He's being played by Harley Silver, who appeared in Red Shoe Diaries, Lewis and Clark, Golden Palace, Married with Children, Evening Shade, Designing Women, Growing Pains, Night Court, Matlock, 30-something, Don't Tell Sophia, Perfect Strangers, Highway to Heaven, My Sister Sam, St. Elsewhere, Murder, She Wrote, Knott's Landing, Every Which Way But Loose, and of course, La La. As the bride and groom start to head inside, Rose stops them. They must abide by the Victorian-era rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, all in efforts to protect the bride from becoming infertile. Greta gives her daughter her blue scarf to wear. Blue. Check. Blanche gifts her her grandmother's earrings. Old. Check. Sophia tries to help with the borrowed portion by offering her already-being-borrowed compression socks that she found on the bus, but Dorothy intervenes giving her a gold bracelet. Borrowed. Check. As for new, Lorraine is carrying it in her womb. With that, they're off to get hitched. With their arms around each other, the mothers bond over the excitement about the baby. Little Roger's Bornack, per Dorothy's suggestion. Greta corrects her. Roger would be a choreographer, which is like, what does that mean? Rogers and Hammerstein? I, I don't know what that is implying. It- I think it's probably implying gay. That's kind of what I took it. Like Roger was. I don't think so. What was the other name? Well, so she recommended that they go with Lamar, which would be Lamar's Bornack. Too many. It's like it's like um, going up and down. Lamar's Bornack. <laughs> and you know Roger. And then Roger's too sharp. Roger's Bornack. They need uh, Mike works. You know, Michael. That works. Stan. That it, it's got to be simple. It's got to be like a gym. Dave. Fred. Mary. Pat. Kathy. Yeah. yeah, these are these are not good names for that last name. Maybe they'll keep her name. That'd be nice. The arguments continue, and it's clear that these ladies may like each other, but they will never agree. When it comes to family, it isn't always easy to agree on things, but what should always be agreed on is love. And sometimes that love shows itself in strange ways. Could Dorothy have better expressed her valid concerns regarding their age difference? Absolutely. But should Michael have understood that his mother was only looking out for his best interests because she cares so much? Yeah. We'll have to wait and see how their marriage turns out. But for now, we'll just have to remember that loving someone means loving them for who they are and sometimes for who they love. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Please... Please join us next week. I know you don't want to, but please, I'm begging you. It's Mr. Terrific. So now we can talk about the movie Josh and... Josh, no. God. Or when he threw the hamster in the fire. 
Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Fake hamster. Hopefully it was it the seventies, baby. Who knows? I don't think Martin Sheen would stand for that. I would and hope I bet not. Jodie Foster. You think Jodie Foster is going to be like, yeah, go ahead and throw that. You think she in has there? the pull at fourteen? Do you hear how she talks to people in that movie? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. She's a powerful woman. <laughs> she is. I love her. Oh. Nell, chicka chicka pie. <laughs> Turn away. I hope we can work Nell into this movie because in 1994 I was obsessed with that movie or whenever it came out. I don't know what year it was or is. <laughs> and we took a helicopter. And I never thought it would be. Isn't it like that? Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. I hope it matches what we just sang so we can lay it in there right over the top of that. Take it away, helicopter man. Ooh, there's an airplane going over. Oh, helicopter man. The choo choo of the sky. <laughs> I didn't like it then. <laughs> Daddy, no. Daddy, no. <laughs> Daddy, where's mom? <laughs> As I start to overheat. <clears throat> Hello. <laughs> yeah, what can I get you? <laughs> what do you want, guy? Did you catch more things as an adult that now that you, <laughs> excuse me, I'm trying to ask a question. You did ask it, <laughs> Why, that's basically Rose's age. Blank, blank. Ellen Barkin. Michael reminds Sophia. Nope. Sophia, you little dummy. Matlock. At the hungry heifer. Blanche is wearing a light mauve blanche. Greta blames iconic singer Diana Ross of the Supremes for her daughter's desire to wear a mite. Wary a mite guy. Just in time, Sophia arrives... Around. That's a joke. I'm not. I'm not offended by that. I was. I was kidding. That was. That was a fun wow. <laughs> wow. I don't believe that. It was. It was a fun wow. Could Dorothy have expressed her valid concerns regarding? Garging. Dorothy continues with the negative. Huh. Always be my sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.